Well, good morning. Glad to see most everyone back from their travels. And uh, if you missed last week, we did a Christmas message. So today we're going to pick right back up where we were the week before that. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. And John chapter 11 is a long narrative, kind of like John chapter 9. John chapter 9 focused on the man that was uh, born blind, who was healed, and it's all one long story. Uh, John chapter 11 is kind of like that as well. It's all one long story. So it's kind of difficult to break up into uh, uh, small enough messages for Sundays, uh, but I think I've divided it up into at least two, maybe three, uh, so we're going to go through that. So today we'll be starting John chapter 11. But uh, last week, or last time we were together over the last few weeks, we've looked at John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, uh, the author John has put together the theme of Jesus Christ being the shepherd. He is the great I am. He is the shepherd, which is extremely important in describing who he is. Because in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the shepherd oftentimes, and Israel as his flock. Uh, also, we looked at Ezekiel 34, where, where God prophesied that he would send, uh, through Ezekiel, they prophesied he would send the, a shepherd because there were no shepherds in Israel. And that's what we find in John chapter 10. God has sent the shepherd, who is God himself, to shepherd because the Jewish leaders were not shepherding correctly. In John chapter 10, we have lots of, 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 of times where Jesus claims equality with God. The Pharisees picked up on that. They wanted to kill him for that. We looked last week at how Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Extremely important passage. And we also looked at several heresies uh, that, that stem from John chapter 9 where people try to change the biblical truths. Uh, one of them we looked at was oneness theology. And it sees God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as one in essence and one in person. And we don't have time to explain that a lot today, but we can just, just briefly, they do not see that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all exist and are the Trinity, but they would say one or the other can exist at one time. Often today it's called modalism. So you can, God the Father would exist or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, but not all at one time. So the Trinity, as our the proper view, the Trinitarian theology sees God the Father, the Son, the Spirit as one in essence, but distinct in persons. And we look briefly at that, this word essence, or more specific, the word substance. Uh, there were lots of debates that came up in church history, especially during the 300s and 400s. You had a heretic named Arius who arose, who founded Arianism, and he said that Jesus uh, and, and God the Father are not the same substance, that God the Son is a different substance, that he is less than God. And there was a big heresy that arose, big fights arose there in church history, and we looked a little bit into Athanasius, who fought against this, and we also looked a little bit that most likely it does look like what, who we often refer to as St. Nick, that Nicholas was there at the meeting and voted on the right side of orthodoxy, that God the Son and God the Father are of the same substance, all right? So uh, we looked at a lot of those things last week, too much to review this week. But today we're going to start chapter 11, and as we've mentioned before, in the entire book of John, 
There's really seven miracles that John camps out on and teaches us about. Uh, today is going to be the, the we're going to get to eventually the rising of Lazarus from the dead. But in, we also know that there are other miracles that Jesus performed. He didn't just perform the seven. If you look at the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, uh, uh, Luke, and Mark, you'll see different miracles that are there. In John chapter 20, kind of our theme, John's theme as he writes, verse 30 through 31, uh, John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he doesn't claim to have written every one of them, but he strategically has chosen these seven. And uh, verse 31 of that chapter 20, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So we find that of all the miracles that, that Jesus performed, John has strategically chosen these seven, and he believes this is ample, substantial proof for us to recognize that Jesus is the Christ that was prophesied, who has now come. He is, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. So before we get going into chapter 11, let's review these six miracles that have happened already. Okay, just kind of a reminder. If you go to the first one, miracle number one, John chapter 2, 1 through 11, we're not going to review deeply. We're not going to read all of this, okay, but just kind of a reminder. Jesus turned water into wine. And there we find that Jesus had been invited to a wedding celebration. In that culture, it was the groom or the bridegroom's responsibility to provide for the wedding, to provide for wine for the wedding, and that they had run out of wine. And Mary goes to Jesus. Apparently, they knew these people. They were close with them and says, can you do something, right? And there, Jesus turns six massive stone containers that each held 20 to 30 gallons of water immediately, instantaneously into wine. So John records this. What does this reveal? Uh, it reveals that Jesus is the greater bridegroom, which is important. As God refers to himself as, to the, as the shepherd in the Old Testament, he also refers to himself as what? The bridegroom. So we find that the earthly bridegroom at this wedding was, was uh, falling down on his duties. He was unable to provide. But the greater bridegroom was able to provide more than enough. And we find that he was able to turn water instantaneously into wine. There was not a fermentation process that might take weeks or might take months to happen. He did not have to add ingredients to make this happen. He was able to speak it into existence. There it was, however he did it. We don't even know uh, how he did it. It just did, but Jesus was able to do that. So lots of, lots, he chooses that one probably to show that he is the greater bridegroom. Also, the, the power to turn one substance into another substance without any time. He's not limited by time. Uh, miracle number two, Jesus healed the official's son. Uh, this son, the official's son, was deathly ill and about to die. He was miles and miles away from where Jesus was. The man makes the hike to finding Jesus and asks him to heal his son, to come heal his son. And Jesus doesn't go heal his son. He just says, your son will live and heals him from afar. So John records this one to let us know that Jesus did not have to be right there to touch the person in order to heal, that he could even do it from a long ways off. He's the, he, that's the kind of power he had. Uh, miracle number three, Jesus healed the invalid. 
this man who was unable to walk for 38 years was at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus tells him to get up, take your bed, and walk. And immediately, a man who has not walked in 38 years, all of his ligaments, his tendons, nerves, neurons, muscles, instantaneously fired, and he was healed and able to stand up, pick up his mat, and walk. And this was, this was amazing that it took place. And it was also amazing that the Jewish leaders, instead of acknowledging this wonderful sign, miracle from God, they were mad at Jesus. Why? Because it was the Sabbath day. And we see those controversies beginning there where the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. Uh, miracle number four, Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish to feed thousands. Uh, John chapter six is basically all about this. But there we find that thousands of people had been following Jesus uh, because he had been performing signs. We also know there were more than what John has written there because of that as well. Uh, but there, there, he's led them far, far out. There are no restaurants. There's no fast food. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no stores anywhere. And now the people are hungry. They go to Jesus. What are we supposed to do? And he multiplies two fish and five little loaves of bread, enough for one person to feed what, what commentarians and theologians estimate is probably around 20,000 people in all. And they pick up 12 baskets of leftovers. And so he feeds all of them. It's the great multiplication of food. Later on in chapter 6, he teaches that he is the greater bread of life that God has sent from heaven. And he ties who he is in with that miracle they perform. Uh, miracle number 5. Only mentioned a little bit in John chapter 6, but it's definitely mentioned that Jesus walked on water. The disciples were out in the boat already miles out. And Jesus meets them over around three miles out in the water, walking on water. All right. Uh, number six, Jesus healed the man born blind. We spent a lot of time on that in chapter nine. But this man had been born blind. And even as the blind man says, uh, um, no one is healed. There's never a history of a man being born blind who has been given sight to see. And it was an amazing thing that happened. Uh, witnesses are called in because the Jewish leaders do not believe it. His parents are called in as well, and, and they're all acknowledging, yes, he was born blind. And Jesus has healed him. And Jesus uses that miracle also to show that he is the light of the world. And we find that that man in the end uh, acknowledges Jesus as not just a man, not just as a righteous man, not just as a prophet, but as God, and he worships him. So those are the six miracles that... John has recorded, and on top of this one, that he believes this is ample evidence for you to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is not just a prophet. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that we must believe in him to have eternal life. So today, we're going to proceed in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 16 as we kind of begin to study the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. I'll begin reading verse 1, and we'll go through verse 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her, with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he had said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. When Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to study, your word to learn from today. We thank you for the words of John that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that we have these evidences that recorded for us, that Jesus has performed these signs, these miracles, these wonders, and they are recorded for us. So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And that the very one who is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, who has the power to do so, will also himself die and rise from the dead, but has also promised all of us that we will rise as well. We thank you that our Savior has lived, has died, and now has ascended into heaven and continues to live, and all who believe in him have eternal life. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the comfort we have. We thank you for the assurance we have of salvation that he has provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if we go back to verse 1 here, uh, we find out, now, at the end of John chapter 10, if you just thumb over there, that Jesus left Jerusalem and he went away. Uh, he went far away from Jerusalem. It looks like he went about four days travel. Uh, so estimate, it's estimated that a person in decent health and shape would walk around 40 miles a day if they were traveling directly to get somewhere. That's a long ways. I found that out this week. I'm like, 40 miles? That's a long ways. Uh, but that's, that would be a four days journey. That's about where he had gone to far away from Jerusalem as they were trying to kill him. Uh, he receives this, this message uh, from this messenger, and the messenger has had to come all that way. And also a kind of a time stamp, when is this happening in the life of Jesus? We had the Feast of Tabernacles. Then we had the Feast of Dedication. That would, the Feast of Dedication would be in December. All that was covered in chapter 10. Feast of Dedication is December. Passover happens in April. And this is the last stint of Jesus' life on earth. So from chapter 10 in December, Jesus leaves. And then in Passover, Jesus will be, of course, coming back into Jerusalem. So most likely, and we don't know this exactly, but most likely it seems like Jesus spent around three months away from Jerusalem. He receives this message, and then they make the trek, four-day trek, back to an area near Jerusalem. This town that is mentioned here, Bethany, is only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. All right, So that's kind of our time stamp. That's kind of our geographical stamp. 
as we study the life of Jesus today. Uh, let's go to verse uh, verse 4 here. Let's just pick up right there. Actually, uh, go back. Uh, you know what? Start at verse 1. Never mind. I was going to try to skip ahead a little, but I'll regret it. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister is sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And what we find from, from this in verse 5 also is that Jesus was especially close to this family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all siblings. We don't know. It's not explored out or written fully out for us what the connectivity was, but they were obviously extremely close to one another. Here in verse 3, uh, she says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We also see this in verse 5, that he lo Jesus loved them dearly. He's very close to this family. Uh, so we find that he knows them, he's close to them, he loves them dearly. Let's look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we find out as we continue to read that the illness does not lead to permanent death because Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. But it's interesting as we look at verse 4, what does Jesus say is for the glory of God? And we've looked at this in chapter 9. If you've been with us through chapter 9 of John, there's going to be some similar points here today. But what does Jesus say is, the, is for the glory of God there in this passage? And it, you, you might say it's it, all right? He says, it is for the glory of God. Uh, what is the it, though, in this passage? It's the illness. Now look back at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it so if you just draw a little arrow over this illness, it, same thing, all right? This illness is for the glory of God. Now, unbeknownst to Lazarus, who is suffering greatly and about to die, his illness is going to be used for the glory of God, specifically for the glory of the Son of God. Uh, does God allow those whom he loves to suffer? And the answer is yes. We find this out exactly in this passage. Oftentimes today, modern Christianity, Christians will suffer, and the first thing they want to wonder is, does God still love me because I'm suffering? And the answer is yes. We're not promised heaven on earth. Heaven is not here. We're still here on earth. There is sickness. There is disease. There is illness. There is calamities, etc., tragedies, persecutions, etc., that can happen to us. We are in bodies that are fading away, as Paul would say, and we look forward to the day when we'll be in bodies that are not fading away. But this is not that time. Uh, we see here that, look back at verse 3, uh, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Uh, and Jesus yet is saying this illness is for the glory of God. Uh, interesting. Can God use personal pain and suffering to accomplish his purpose in your life? And the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, this is not unique to the blind man. This is not unique to Lazarus. Uh, it's not unique to only Job of the Bible, who is the most righteous man on the earth, yet his entire family dies, is taken from him. All his possessions are taken from him. His wealth is taken from him. His, his health is taken from him. And yet, he comes out the other side 
more righteous than he was at the beginning, seeing God more clearly than he did at the beginning. God used suffering to bring about a greater sanctification of Job. And as, as interesting as that story is, it's not, he's not the only one. God works like that through Christians all the time. Uh, we see many examples of this. Again, we looked at this early as we studied John chapter 9. But look at these again. Anytime we talk about suffering and illness and for the glory of God, I think it's good to connect a few dots here. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10. This is Paul talking about his great ailment. We don't know exactly what it is. There's some theories out there, but I'm not going to uh, go into those for the purpose of this sermon. But verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amazing. Here we obviously have uh, something in the flesh of Paul. He has prayed God to remove it three times. God said no, that that is there actually for your own good. Whatever this is that he is suffering with and suffering from, God has providentially ordained it and it is there. And Paul realizes it's there for him not to become conceited, but God makes him stronger through his weakness. And that verse 10, though, is amazing. Now look at it. Uh, he, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content. And re look over this list. He's content with whatever ails him in his flesh. He says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is a question we would apply to ourselves here. Should you be more content in your suffering? And probably all of us should answer yes, <laughs> right? But he is content in his suffering. He is content when he gets insulted. He is content in his hardships, in persecutions, even calamities, or what we might call tragedies. Things are so unexpected, right? He is still content. How can he be content? Because he trusts in God. He knows God is sovereign. He know, knows that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord, who have been called according to his purpose, and he is that person. All right. So you see Paul trusting in God and becoming more and more content, understanding that God can use hardships, persecutions, tragedies, calamities, weaknesses, problems in the body itself for good. And so this, there's definitely something great to be learned here. Lazarus's illness is for the glory of God. Uh, we find out in chapter 9, the man's blindness was for the glory of God. Uh, and here, Paul is saying all these things that are happening to him, he is content. 
because he's still trusting Christ. He knows that Christ is in control. Look at Philippians 1, 29 through 30. Uh, this one, he lets us know that this is not just, not just him. It is not only him that God is using uh, weaknesses of the flesh and hardships, persecutions, etc., to work out good in their life. Verses 29 through 30 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So what do we find from this passage? We find out that he was not unique in his suffering as the only Christian who would suffer. But he says all the Philippians, uh, the believers that are there, they are suffering. Who has granted them this suffering? It would be God. We find out from verse 29 that God has granted them belief. And oftentimes as good, strong, reformed Christians, we say, yes, look at this, right? God has granted them belief. But also you keep reading and God has granted them suffering. Uh, that's not something we like to camp out on too much, right? It's not as, I like the God granting belief, not granting suffering. But we find out that the very same God who had blessed them with belief, repentance of sin, and salvation is also the same God who has granted them to suffer. And that there is a reason for this. There's a purpose for this. And that God is sovereign still. God has not lost control. Just because you're suffering from whatever it is that you're suffering from, God has not lost control, and God still loves you. And we find out that even those he loves uh, still do suffer. And some, and this is, I, I quoted this verse earlier, but Romans 8, 28 is something we need to rely on oftentimes when we are suffering. Uh, it simply says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is an excellent passage to look into and to recall when you're going through difficult times. Because you have Paul, who is writing this, who has suffered greatly in his life. He's been stoned, he's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been chased all around, he's running for his life. Oftentimes, he's been in prisons, he's been, been rejected. At one time, they stoned him till they thought he was dead, right? And they left him out for dead. I mean, constantly going through bad things. He has this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. And yet... Look at 8.28. The same guy writes this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is not written from a guy. It's easy to write these things if you have never gone through a problem in your life. And it's just like, ah, life is easy. All things work out for good. But he, this is a guy who's gone through a lot in his lifetime. A lots of pain. Lots of physical pain. Lots of spiritual and emotional anguish. And yet he can write that God is sovereign over all of it. And for those that love God, whatever is happening, it is for his good. It is for your good. That's hard to wrap your mind around. But it changes everything when you're going through suffering, knowing that God is still in control. Satan has not gained control. God has not lost control. God still loves you. And he is using whatever this is for his good. Now, if you are not a believer, do not apply Romans 8.28 to your suffering, all right? And do not apply that to all things going on in your life. This is for those who love God. All things work together for good 
to those who are called according to his purpose. All right. Uh, now, does does the all things include suffering? Absolutely. It includes the suffering here. How do you respond to suffering? Uh, it's not that it's not that we don't want to be uh, masochist and like I've got a headache, so I'm not going to take a, an ibuprofen because I I want to suffer for Christ. All right. That's not what's going on here. If you can alleviate some of your suffering and a safe and legal method, right, that that's OK to do. But the point of this is, how do we handle suffering, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, uh, whatever it is, financial? How, what do we do? Uh, and we've covered this a lot over the last few weeks in chapter 9, but we don't want to think that God does not love us. We see in Scripture that this is common uh, for believers to often lose everything, like Job, or in the book of Hebrews, as mentioned. They, they had all their possessions and homes taken away, or there in Jerusalem, in Acts, uh, and early in Acts, that all the believers had to flee Jerusalem, run away. From all their homes. I mean, imagine that happening. You just got, got a suitcase. Kids, let's go. And they're going 50, 60, 80 miles away just to survive. Uh, did God love them more than he loved us or less than he loved us or, or what? Uh, the point is, suffering is a common lot to Christians. Just just yesterday on the news, I was reading uh, Christmas Day in Nigeria, uh, which isn't covered that often because it was just Christians, but 140 Christians were massacred. Uh, in Nigeria, and then you read a little bit further, and it says 52,000 Christians in Nigeria have been slaughtered since 2009, and they just come in, hatchets, whatever it is, uh, some were shot, and just butchered the entire area because they claim to be Christians. So oftentimes we live here and think, oh, wow, you know, I might be facing a little bit of suffering, but then you look around the world and you realize that's still going on. Uh, massive, massive suffering that, that we don't see that yet here. And we, we may not see that here, but yet we need to be aware that many Christians have suffered, do suffer, and that we are not um, counted out from suffering. Uh, John chapter 9, verse 3, we find uh, very similar wording, all right? John chapter 9, verse 3, to what uh, to what Jesus says here about Lazarus's illness, that this illness, that it is for the glory of God, specifically for the glory of the Son of God. That's why John has recorded this one especially for us. But in John chapter 9, verse 3, almost the same wording Jesus answered. Uh, it was not this man, not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man who had been born blind, that's, that's a, a lot of suffering, right? To have a child born blind for his parents. To have a child who is born blind, cannot see anything. To grow up and they just put him on the corner to beg every day of his life now he's a grown man now he's still in the corner begging he has not been able to see but yet you look at verse verse three that the works of god might be displayed in him is why this man is blind like that that's a lot of suffering that's a lot of pain but yet he ends up worshiping god at the end of that chapter chapter not just with the eyes that see but spiritual eyes that see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord, that he is God. So long story short, here with Lazarus, we see that his illness, that it, is for the glory of God. Uh, we see the same thing over there in chapter 9. We see this played out many times with Paul mentioning this about himself, uh, him also applying it to the believers there in Philippi. This is not unexpected. This is the normal lot for Christians. We see this heavily, uh, heavily mentioned over in, the, of course, the book of Job. Let's move on. Uh, look at verse 5 through 8 of John chapter 11. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So here we find out, once again, Jesus loved Lazarus, but also he loved Martha and loved Mary as well. Um, there's also an interesting uh, statement here. We, obviously, we see that there is a looming threat of death. John chapter 10 ends with Jesus leaving Jerusalem as they're trying to kill him. That threat apparently is still there. They want to kill him. So his disciples are making him aware of that, as if Jesus needed to be made aware of things. But they're like, hey, if we go back, they're still wanting to kill us. Is this wise to do? And in this passage, we also see that uh, they are wanting to stone him. Uh, they're recognizing him as rabbi there in verse 8. And we also see that he didn't take off right away to go to where Lazarus was. Uh, he did not take off running there or go there. It was a four-day journey. What is most, most expected is that by the time the messenger gets there from where he was, four days journey, the messenger is bringing word that he was alive when he left. By the time he gets there, uh, most likely is at that time where, uh, or during the journey back or making that decision, Lazarus has died. So there's not an immediate rush to get back because by the time he gets there, uh, they let him know that he's been dead for three days. So they're, they're, Jesus knows this is going to happen. There is no rush to get back. In fact, he thanks God that it happens as it does so that they may believe. And we see that John 20, verse 30, 31, tying in here. He is glad. Why, what is he glad about? That Lazarus has died. Why? So you may believe in me for what's about to happen and to happen going to take place. Um, John chapter 11, verse 9. Let's look at that, verse 9 through 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is a, a fairly difficult passage to interpret to see exactly what Jesus is wanting to, wanting to get across here. But we have a cross-reference just earlier in John chapter 9 that kind of helps us with that. So if you want to turn over... Look at John 9, 4 through 5. You have this, the light and the day and the walking and the hours of the day. It's very similar to what happens in John chapter 9. So I think we can gain some clarity when we go back and look at this cross-reference. Verse 4 through 5, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when you take that, in conjunction with what he says over here in verses uh, verse 9 and 10, it seems to be the same kind of a point that is being, being made here, that now is the time for me to work, and this is why I'm going to heal this man born blind. This is why I'm going to heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead. It is daytime. It's a figure of speech that describes his active, earthly, in-the-flesh ministry of Jesus. But the night is coming when he'll be arrested, will be put to death, and that is the, a big change there, all right? Uh, look at verse 11. Let's continue on. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So here we find out that even the death of Lazarus, his illness, and even his death is for the good of not just Lazarus, but it's also good for the disciples and for those who are going to witness this. Uh, this passage, I'm just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it is interesting. You have Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses who believe in what's called soul sleep. And uh, they would have the belief that once you die, you remain in an unconscious soul sleep until the final resurrection from the dead. Uh, I do not believe in that. I don't believe you guys believe in that either. And we're, we're going to show a few examples of this, all right? It is common in the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament heavily, but New Testament also for death to be described as sleep. And it's very common. Uh, but oftentimes they'll use this passage as, hey, look, he was asleep. Here Jesus is talking about that. He's in soul sleep. He'll be awakened at the final resurrection type deal. But that's not what is being referred to. Just a few examples. And, and you can write these down if you're taking notes. But there's like 20 different examples. I'm not going to give each one in the Old Testament. But for example, 1 Kings 2.10 says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. This just means death, all right? Uh, 1 Kings 11.43, And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his, his father David. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Common way of speaking about death. Acts 7, verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Who was that? That was Stephen. Uh, so it's not, it's not like he just, just laid over and took a nap as he was getting stoned to death. It obviously means that he died, right? Uh, but what does that mean? We have, does that mean that you just you go to sleep and you don't wake up for, for whatever, thousands of years uh, until the final res resurrection from the dead? We don't find that in Scripture. We actually find what little examples we do have that those who have gone on before us are very active. They're, very, they're cognizant. Even though they may not have their final resurrected body that we will have in the new heavens and new earth, uh, but they are very cognizant. They're very active, okay? The Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus ascends, uh, who is there to meet him, is Moses and Elijah, who had died hundreds and thousand years er earlier. Moses and Elijah are there, and they're talking with him. They're communicating with him. They're not in a, a bed asleep, all right? They're, they're there. They're active. They're alert. We find the same thing with Samuel over in 1 Samuel oh, chapter 28. Uh, you find Samuel, whatever this interesting episode is, we find that he's very alert, very cognizant, and communicating there with Saul. Uh, multiple places. Another example, Luke 16, 22 through 23, when Jesus teaches on uh, these matters. Look at verse 22 and verse 23. Turn over there with me, if you don't mind. Luke 22, 16, 22 through 23. Jesus says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And we're not going to go into this entire story, but one thing I want to see here is that Jesus is not teaching soul sleep. 
he is teaching afterlife is very active, very cognizant, and that Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side. And we also see the rich man here is taken to Hades, and he is in torment. We also find later, if we kept reading, where the man in torment is able to talk and able to communicate, is able to experience pain, right? So we see that it is, it's not asleep. This is active, all right? They're, they're very present. Uh, Philippians 1, 21 through 23 is another great one. Where Paul writes about such a thing. Oftentimes, we, uh, we who are alive <clears throat> think that death is the worst possible thing that could happen to us. Uh, Paul had a different view of death than most modern Christians do. He did not see death as the worst thing that could happen to him. He kind of was ready. <laughs> he kind of was like looking forward to it. Life was hard, very hard, thorn in his flesh every day, all night. And uh, you can only imagine how much he suffered in the beatings and the scars and, and the fractures from getting stoned, etc., and just the anguish that he had been in. He looked forward to going to heaven. Uh, 1, 21 through 23, he says this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which, I, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So what do we find from this passage? We find that Paul treated death as gain. It wasn't that he was going to go into non-existence. He considered it gain. Because what was there to gain? He would instantly be with Christ. That was the big gain. He would be in the, the one that he had served, the one that he was living for. He would be with Christ. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For this is far better than the life he was living. So we, the worst, if you looked at your eternal span, however long that is, right? You can't say infinite. You're, as, a, as, a, as a believer, you are in the worst part of it right now. <laughs> I know that's weird to think about, but this, the moment we die and we depart and we are with Christ, that, that's where we will be for all of eternity. And heaven is awaiting us. And this is what we are looking forward to. And that's what Paul was looking forward to. Life had been extremely hard on him. He loved to work for Christ and continued to work for Christ until his life was taken from him. But he knew where he was going. He was sure of where he was going. He longed to be with Christ. And he knew as soon as he departed, he would be with Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is another one. Verse 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8. So, uh, Paul similarly says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So again, what does he say? Where is he going? Away from the body is to be with the Lord. So Paul is looking forward to departing and being with Christ. He considers it gain. He considers it better. Uh, he considers it at home with the Lord. While we are in our, our bodies, we're away from the Lord. But at the moment we are not, we are in the presence of the Lord. So we don't look at these passages as, as, as Lazarus being asleep, as anything substantial as far as building a soul sleep type uh, doctrine. The rest of the Bible is speaking clearly against such a thing. Paul looked forward to that, all right? Uh, let's go on over to verse, verse, uh, verse 16 of John chapter 11. So Thomas called the twin 
said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, we don't have a lot of words of Thomas, uh, of the words of the disciples. Uh, besides Paul, who comes on later, Peter would, of course, have the most words recorded uh, in the New Testament for us. We don't have a lot written of Thomas. But here, as a uniquely, you have Thomas speaking up. Most often, Peter is the spokesman for the disciples and is quickest to speak. But here you have Thomas uh, speaking out. And what does he say? Let us also go that we may die with him. So wh wh why is he wanting to be a martyr? What is he saying? Well, he's fine. he knows Lazarus is now dead. They, Jesus wants them to go back to right outside of Jerusalem. What does this mean for them? It means that they're going to be put to death. That's what Thomas is thinking. Uh, he's not scared to die. At this point, he says, let us go die. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, you want to go back? Okay, we'll go back. We're all going to die, but I'm okay with that. Let's go. It's like he is, he is, he is being obedient to the end is what he is claiming at this point. Let us go die with him. Now, uh, turn over. Uh, we'll get there eventually, but it could be a year. So turn to John chapter 20. Look at verse 25 through 29. And we have, we have the other, you might call, the great words of Thomas. And he's often called Doubting Thomas, but you don't, it, it, that's kind of mean. <laughs> you don't really want to put that with him. I mean, I mean there is there's something going on there, but I sure hate for the disciple to be labeled that because he goes on to live an amazing, amazing life of ministry and missionary work and, and, and bringing the gospel. And it's just, uh, we have, we have what, not, not, not recorded in the Bible, but his, we do have lots of his activity that is recorded uh, where he does continue. To, to live faithfully. But here in John 20, verse 25 to 29, uh, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to the other disciples, but he's not appeared to Thomas yet. So that's where we pick up. Look at 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here we have some more words of Thomas. Right? Verse 28. My Lord and my God. So we don't have a lot of words by him, but what we do have is pretty amazing. Uh, in chapter 11, we have him willing to go die. If Christ says go, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. Uh, in chapter 20, we find that he's, he's not, this is, it's not like any of the disciples had their mind wrapped around this fully, right? Uh, because G Jesus is arrested, and what happens to them? They take off running, and they go into hiding. And even at this, this John chapter 20, they're in a locked room, and they're hiding like cowards. So uh, you really could call them the doubting disciples, not just Thomas. And Jesus does appear, but even then, they're like, ah, what is this? And they, they, none of them had, were expecting this fully. And so Thomas is in that same crowd. So when they say, hey, Jesus showed up, he's like, ah, oh, you know, unless I put my finger and I see it, and then he shows up. 
And what does Thomas say? Beautiful statement. My Lord and my God. Very similar to Peter's confession uh, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so here you have a great confession, great profession of Thomas who says to Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my God. So, so Thomas, long story short, we get a little glimpse into his life here, all right? Uh, in summary, uh, chapter 11 is building to the last miracle that will be performed by Jesus other than his resurrection from the dead. Uh, it's it's Lazarus's resurrection, which is going to be fascinating because John records this before it, he starts leading into Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. So this is going to be the final miracle that is recorded by John. Uh, with, the il with the illness of Lazarus and with the illness of the blind man in chapter 9, we can understand the reality of suffering in this world. It is a real world with real suffering. And yet, we also see in John chapter 11 that Jesus loved the one that was suffering. Yet, he allowed him to suffer. He never stopped loving him. He continued to love him. There's definitely something there that we need to take home because suffering, to some degree, is the common lot of humanity. And just because you're a Christian does not mean that you're not going to suffer. Do not believe uh, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, the divine health, and don't believe it. Uh, you are going to suffer. You, if you're sick, if you're ill, you can pray as Paul did. Hey, God, please remove this from me, if at all possible. But he very well may not. Does that mean that God does not love you? Or does God not love Paul? No. God, in his wisdom, believed it best that that ailment stay in Paul for his own good. Amazing to think about. So a lot, lot there to ponder on. Don't forget this. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord who have been called according to his purpose. If you love the Lord, he obviously is loving you because you love him, but all things happen for the good, your good. And so rest in that, rest in the sovereignty of God. Even though you may not understand why things happen the way they do, we have plenty of examples of, of what we would consider bad things, tough times, calamities, illnesses, sicknesses, weaknesses happening to solid, solid believers not because they've done something wrong, but somehow God is gaining glory through it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would indeed rest in your sovereignty and rest in your love for us. And we don't have the answers sometimes, or hardly any time, when we have particular sufferings that come our way. Help us to rest in you and continue to walk in obedience no matter what. Help us not to uh, make shipwreck of our faith and think wrong things and, and poor doctrine when we are suffering, would help us to continue to rest, help us to continue to be content as Paul was, even in calamities, tragedies, weaknesses, persecutions, insults, hardships, whatever is coming that we don't enjoy and don't particularly like, whether it's emotional ailments, uh, physical ailments, uh, whatever it is, God help us to be content knowing that even through this, you are working things out for your glory and for our good. Help us to see that even as Job, as we barely mentioned today, but had everything taken from him, in the end, you are working out his own good, and that he was better at the end than he was at the beginning. And that is the part of sanctification process. 
So God, help us not to doubt you. Help us not to doubt your love when things happen to us, but help us to be content and help us to continue to walk in obedience.